And let us turn together in God's Word to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. This morning and evening I'll be turning to this chapter uh, from Paul's letter to to Rome, Romans 15. Uh, This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 7. And as is a structure with many of Paul's letters, he spends the first half or more speaking of gospel truth, uh, of the reality which we stand in because of Jesus. In the last portion, we're giving practical application of that according as we are to the 15th chapter, we are definitely in the application portion. It means that uh, even as we begin, we need to remember uh, that gospel truth. We need to not be ashamed of the gospel. That Jews and Greeks have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That God has manifested a righteousness in Jesus. Uh, a, a mystery hidden now revealed, which we now receive by faith, so that no one may go. With that in mind, let's turn now to him. Chapter 15, verses. This is God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, and Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And Lord, that you, uh, you did not just take the words of mere men and adopt them, but Lord, you sent your spirit. Men spoke as they were moved by you. Jesus is God breathed. And Lord, how needful we are with the words from our God. And without this anger for our souls, we are adrift on an ocean. But without this, where would we have endurance? endurance? Where, would we, where would we be without the encouragement of the Spirit? So give us hope. Build us up in this way. Praying Jesus' name. Sometimes people just don't get along. After there's an experience that you're thinking about, a relationship that comes to mind even as I say those words, uh, but it is a reality. It is a reality that sometimes there, there are difficulties. There are people that don't want to do the hard work of uh, serving one another or uh, overlooking offenses or, or reconciling. And so in those situations, what, what might be done to motivate them? You might think, uh, well, just tell them what they should do. Just, just, just tell them, you know, you're, you're, you're being bullheaded right now. You need to stop that. How, how's that going to work? <laughs> Uh, how uh, how uh, short-sighted that can be when we just tell people to do things that they have no desire to do. Their hearts remain unchanged. Well, what's needed is a heart change. I would put to you it is a heart change that must come to gospel for real, real reconciliation. And yet, where is that gospel? It's in this passage. They also come examples. Examples to, to put in the context of what is to be done and how it is to be done also a vision of how things could be 
because that lack of vision is what keeps uh, keeps you just facing that that that, that clear proposition, just that 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 that, that tension that you hold, and that's all you can see. You just get a vision. And it's given in grace once you have that in this passage. And so this the passage that teaches us to bear with the weak because of Jesus for the glory of God. Bear with the weak because of Jesus for the glory of God. But first, uh, uh, we do see that this is a motivation. This is uh, something that Paul is giving, and he says, do it because of Jesus. Uh, but what is it? Uh, what is the it we're supposed to do? Doing? Well, actually, that's supplied for us by the previous chapter. Uh, Paul summarizes it here uh, as, uh, as we begin chapter 15. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Okay, so it's a strong and a weak dynamic. That's the tension that's happening. Uh, but that's not necessarily some of the ways that we might hear those today. That's not talking about physically strong and weak people. Uh, that's not Paul's focus. It, nor is it uh, socially strong, which is weak. We need it not to read into this uh, power dynamics uh, and other sort of Marxist ideas of, of tensions that people can have. No, no, Paul has a meaning that he has for strong and weak that we know by studying the previous passage. When Paul says strong, he means someone who has had their conscience informed and freed by the truth. And Paul identifies himself among the people by saying, we are strong, and you are strong. By contrast, people who are weak believe something to be wrong that actually is not wrong. Uh, they are not settled enough in their faith that they, they might be tempted to defy their conscience if they see a brother being uh, these are the stronger and weaker brothers that Paul came up for this passage. And so the application that Paul gives here is that the stronger, uh, those who, who have uh, their, their, their consciences informed by the Scriptures, who are not going to violate uh, what they know to be wrong by God's word, that they should not then trample the conscience of the weaker. The strong should, not, should be careful not to judge his brother. Uh, he should be careful to not uh, for the sake of eating meat, that happens to have been offered and sacrificed to idols, uh, by doing so to lead his brother to stumble. He would be against conscience to follow leading that meat. The strong should bear the failings of the weak. He's not just to do as he pleases. Strong Christian, you must be, you, if you are strong, if you identify, okay, I, I know the scriptures, I'm informed by them, I, I, I want to, I, 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 I discern things according to the way that God has them, but you need to prove it. You must consider your weaker brother or sister. And Paul doesn't just say that this is something the stronger brother might do if he's feeling especially kind or, or charitable towards that weaker, that's still a weaker brother. No, Paul says this obligation. You need to be so Even this is part of a more general principle which Paul articulates in verse 2. He says, let us please his neighbor, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. All things are to be done for building up. This is a theme throughout Paul's letters. So 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for building up. Or Ephesians 4, uh, Christ gives gifts, including shepherd teachers. Uh, something that I understand by you as a congregation are, are awaiting as the Lord uh, would personally get a pastor uh, to equip the saints for the building up of that book. He says in Ephesians 4, the shepherd teachers are, are to equip the saints for the building up of the body. Uh, or in that same chapter, Ephesians 4, all of us are to let no corrupting thoughts come from our mouth, but only as it is good, such as is good for building up. So we are to be building up the body. 
building up one another, building God's house. John has that people, but we are to take part in it. This is because Christ is zealous for God's house. Right. And so you must be about those things. Friends, this is the duty that Paul has for the Cameroon's home. Uh, um, strong brothers, you can't just live like everything is about you. You are part of a body of believers. You need to do what is for the good of everyone. We are brothers. We, we need to not quarrel about it. Let each of us please his neighbor. Now, please them. This is not in the final sense of, let's try to scratch each other's back, let's try to uh, each uh, you know, do some fleeting pleasure. No, that's not, not the place for pleasing this cause in life. But the highest and best place is to enjoy God for us, to serve Him with a full conscience. And so, the way Paul grounds this obligation, and he does so by giving an example. He doesn't just give it a command and say, that's it. He gives the example, verse 3, of Jesus. He says, for Christ did not Friends, uh, what, what is communicated here is that this didn't just come from Paul's pen, but from Jesus' life. Christ didn't see himself. Now, friends, that's not because Christ lacked opportunity to see himself. And Christ didn't grasp the equality he deserved as the second person of the Trinity, but took our form, even the form of a servant. As for, and as the God-man, Christ didn't bow to Satan, even for all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. Think of how pleasurable that would be to have all the kingdoms and their glory. Christ did not please himself. Christ furthermore didn't make a billion dollars multiplying wealth and selling them. He didn't heal for hiding. He freely gave out of compassion, even though he himself had nowhere to raise his soul. He never minded Christ didn't come to Jesus. He washed his disciples dirty. Even, even in that, uh, uh, Christ, even in that suffering for our sins, uh, Christ didn't get down from the cross, even to save his own. Don't take Christ pity for Jesus could have called down legions of angels. Uh, they could show those Roman legions a thing or two. Friends, we would do well. Take time to reflect on Christ the strong, bearing with the failings of the weak. And that relationship to the weak. Do you love that Jesus was gentle and lowly towards you? You love that he would not break a bruised reed. You love that your shepherd has laid down his life for you. The sheep. What the shepherd does then? If you love this about you. If you love your Lord, then you ought to love the opportunity to follow his pattern toward those weak ones whom he has set in your path. You jump at the opportunity to do to others as Christ has done. You should be eager to build up the body of Christ. Friends, what a beautiful place the church would be if we did not see the strong using their strength to feed themselves, or the fat scattering the weak sheep, or that if the flock looks more like the shepherd. Paul says, do it because of Jesus. And you notice that Paul supplies a specific example of Jesus' selflessness from the scripture. It is written. But it's none of the examples that uh, I've given you from the Gospels or, or that uh, you might find uh, searching throughout Paul's other writings. You won't find this quote in Matthew, Mark, and John. Paul is exhorting us to do it because of Jesus, 
the same Jesus we encounter for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approach the Jews fell upon Before we make a study that connection, I do want you to notice a few things about even the fact that Paul is teaching Jesus and that he's quoting the Psalms. The first thing is that Paul does not explain why he's quoting from the Psalms to talk about Jesus. But as I expect most pastors standing in the pulpit today, they would feel like they would have to unpack that. Like, why, why, why are the Psalms, why do they have anything to do with Jesus? It's a thousand of years before Jesus. They say you feel know, like you have to explain something. Uh, add to that, second, that Paul has not been to Rome. In chapter 1, we learn that though Paul has been praying ceaselessly for them, he thus far has been prevented from coming to them. And so Paul is not relying on some peculiar teaching or maybe maybe some inside jokes. You might say, but, you know, sometimes some particular thing that he taught them, and that was unique to maybe the Romans or unique to Paul as a teacher. No, no, no Paul is expecting that they are going to know Which leads us to the Jews third, that this must have been a common interpretation in the Christians, even uh, so soon after our Lord's death and resurrection, even a church of Gentiles in Rome expected that we may have read or sung the Psalms in the very least of Psalm 16. And we say this when we read these words, we're talking about our Lord. Quite a contrast. How many Christians today do the Psalms? Part of the problem today is, is the wake of destruction left by dispensationalists. People will say, oh, the Psalms are. Well, those are for the Jews. The Psalms were about David. The Psalms are sub-Christian. But Paul says, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for us. And in Psalm 69, I will remind you, we've been singing it, it's, it's an imprecatory psalm, a cursing psalm. This psalm, instruction for Christians. Even Gentile Christians advertise the church in Rome. Paul says that it is through endurance and encouragement of description. He says this is one. These songs that we arise hope. The songs are about Jesus. These are about Christ. The songs are then for Christians. And so let's then encounter this Jesus that I'll quote from as he quotes in Psalm 69. And we sung through part of it already. But you might, you might turn in the fact that God's word to that psalm, right? because uh, as Paul often does when he's quoting from the Old Testament, he's bringing a lot of that He's bringing that context, and so you see well to, to, to look at this. But reading through it, you could soon notice that uh, there are other pieces in the New Testament that find Christ here. And for instance, uh, when Jesus claimed the temple, his disciples remembered verse 9. It was zeal for his father's house to continue. Jesus has a desire, a zeal for his father's house, a desire that all things become for building up of that. And when our Lord himself hung on the cross and cried, I thirst, was it not as verse 3, my throat is parched? Or verse 21, they gave me sour wine. And when the apostles were awaiting Pentecost, they found direction from this psalm and another psalm from place Judas, particularly quoting from the imprecation. Taking it as Jesus' directive, verse 25, May there can't be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tent. But to Paul's point, in this psalm, we find one who is suffering with reproaches. Reproaches it. Many of you know them experientially. Churches are disapproved. Criticism. 
disappointment. And though there is complexity in verse 5, the psalmist says his suffering is not for any fault in himself. Verse 4, he says, what I did not feel. So we have one who is suffering what another could have suffered, or somebody else must have stolen it if I didn't. And I, I am being forced to explain. In fact, this might be the verse that we would expect Paul to quote from this psalm, because he worked that righteous requirement for us. The, the ultimate strong man did not abandon us in our weakness. Uh, he had compassion. He bore our sins. He paid our penalty. He restored that debt which we owed. And while Paul might have had that in mind, he quoted not what the psalmist said of reproaches from other men or toward him, as he put other men reproaching him, but Paul quoted what the psalmist said for God. Verse 8. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach. For Paul's quotation, the reproaches of those who approach you have fallen on me. He suffers reproaches that most definitely are unjust. But they're unjust for this reason. That the reproaches were wrong to begin with. But they were actual reproaches. It was not as any sinful reproaches aimed at God. You might ask here, who is rightfully reproachful of God? Who actually has a legitimate fault to find with him? Has God ever done wrong to, de- to deserve men to hate him? Well, that is exactly what evil men do. And Jesus, in fulfillment of this psalm, endured, endured that being fully God, but also fully man. Because Paul is therefore arguing that if Jesus bore such unjust reproach, it was unjust in the beginning because it was against God, why would followers of Christ, who are strong, expect that they will not need to bear with a failing Or why do you think that it should be you who is exempt from putting others' needs ahead of yourself? Why do you find it okay to place stumbling blocks in front of your weaker brother? My Lord, and I know we have the privilege of singing these songs and singing regularly, and it is true that in them we have a whole anatomy of the soul, there is application to songs which speak to our hearts in whatever situation we find ourselves, or even in Psalm 13, Psalm of the Month, uh, that, that knows us so well. But we jump sometimes to We sometimes fail to see that the power of the psalms is not that this psalm reach us in those depths. That we find Christ there already. The Psalms are for us as Christians, but they are for us because they were first for Christ. Paul and the apostles recognized Him there. And we who sing them ever do so by that is for us. They failing to find Him. It's for our endurance and encouragement only because it was first for Him. Our Lord. So Paul wants us to look deeply at Christ from the whole of the scriptures, which are for our instance. Let's find in, in, in particularly these psalms, endurance and encouragement. Endurance and encouragement. For whatever this world, for whatever was written in former days, was written for our instruction that through the endurance, through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we must. And in the third part of this passage, Paul desires that we glorify God. With one voice. Glorify God with one voice. Now, having told us to expect endurance 
and encourage us from the scriptures. Paul then draws our attention to the God of endurance and adversity. The scriptures, uh, including the Psalms, are of aid to us only because they are the Word of God. All the endurance and encouragement that, and the hope that we draw from them is, is from Christ, who is described in them, and ultimately from God Himself. And thus Paul concludes this section by calling on God and to do what only God can do. He's calling on God to grant harmony and unity. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ's peace. Harmony, you know, it means that not everybody sings soprano, not everyone sings bass. Uh, different voices singing in ways that complement one another, uh, such as those who are strong doing things that are appropriate to the strong, not serving themselves, not passing judgment, not putting stumbling blocks before their brothers, but seeking their brothers' good. So the weak doing what's appropriate to them, the weak not quarreling over opinions. Harmony. And yet, each claims his or her part, and, and, and there's a unity that can be achieved in that, that Paul speaks of here. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These multiple and diverse voices sing together as what? As, as one voice. Unity. This is why we sing together as Christians. This is a pattern that it does more than just what we're doing as we're doing it. There's, there's something that's symbolizing it. This is one reason why we sing in the same song. We, we do need to have unity. We do, we do need to sing with one voice. We also sing with our many voices. Something that's, that's, that's Christian. It's uh, Paul is drawing out for us here. Harmony and unity. This is a Christian concept. When we practice it, it gives praise to God alone who grants such harmony to such diverse people. And this concept we're going to point out to you flows even from the psalm that Paul has already quoted. You can see this from this psalm. It's also, I think, drawing out this Harmony and unity from this story. What I'd like to point out to you is that there's the same one who suffered reproaches, who was given vinegar for his thirst, whose zeal for God's house consumed him, who, 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 who let another take the office of him who betrayed him. This one sings. It's on 69, verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. He suffered the reproaches that were reproaches. This is the one who has confidence. Here that he will praise God again. That I will praise. It's a commitment. It's a promise. This is this is the yearning of his soul. What he wants to do is praise God. And yet the praise that he first hears from him in this song does not end with what one just not with his voice singing alone. He says, verse 34, in that same song, that heaven and earth. The seas and everything that moves in them. This psalm moves from the psalmist's praise to worldwide praise. You hear Christ singing and commanding this. Let, let all of these praise him as well. Uh, this psalm, you hear Christ's voice calling us to add our voices as with all things. It's meant for God's glory, it's meant for his praise, and, and we, we add our voices too. It's really fitting that we sing God's praises from this song, Jewish Harmony and Unity. Strong Christians sing weak Christians. Well, welcome Christians. Sing the praises. The comfort is unity. 
teaching it can only be achieved when you see Christ himself. So, and with harmony and unity. Because with our harmony, united in one voice, we glorify the God and Father of our Lord. Because when we welcome one another, strong, welcoming the weak, the weak, welcoming the strong, it brings glory to God. It's bigger than just your relationship to each other. It's something that's much larger than the glory of God. To welcome one another. Because all things are made for glory. We were made for the Christ commands it. And as we worship, as we follow Christ's example, God is And so, let us bear with him. Because of Jesus, God. This is God, Heavenly Father, thank you for these simple things. And even your word and your songs, even as we sing together, that these things so, so much bigger than we often let on. And that these cause us to see our our striving and quarreling with one another in context where the Lord took it on. So grant us to bear with us. Lord, forgive us where we have been slow to believe, slow to, to take our eyes off of these struggles, those tears to our eyes. Then, Lord, set our eyes on you. Before we're focused on you. 